listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. It was about a month ago that we announced that one of our St. Ben's small groups was going to take the lead for us in the sponsorship of a refugee family. And at about the same time, I decided that I wanted to preach an epiphany sermon on Jesus as a refugee. I'd been talking with Steve Bell, and he'd offered this insight about how in this story from the Gospel according to Matthew, God, who is our strength and our refuge, has become God the refugee. It was one of those moments where you see a familiar text with new eyes. I mean, I know this story really well. I've been preaching it for almost 30 years. I've even referred to Mary, Joseph, and their baby as refugees before. But somehow, between that connection Steve was making between God as our refuge and God the refugee, and the current crisis in the world... This observation struck me in a very particular way. So it seemed that the sermon would almost write itself. And sometimes that does actually happen, at least from time to time. This insight was just so rich and timely. Funny thing, though, is that if I had just tracked things back a wee, wee bit... I'd have realized that anything I might have to say this evening has already been said. Steve's own song, Refugee, from his Keening for the Dawn album, wrestles deeply and brilliantly with this image. And that has much to do with the fact that Steve's song is built on Malcolm Geith's poem, Refugee, a powerful presentation of this image of Christ as a refugee. Now, that poem was actually picked up on in the Christmas Day sermon of Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He actually cites Malcolm's poem. So much for being original here, I just have to tell you, we stand on the shoulders of giants, which is not a bad thing. Now, typically, the reading for Epiphany focuses on the experiences of the Magi on their unexpected and surprising epiphany in which they see in the face of a peasant child something of the divine. As astrologers, they'd set out on the road in search of a royal child they believed was signified by this unusual star. They arrived in Judea, and the most logical thing was to go to the royal home, to King Herod. But no, there were no royal babies in the palace. You need more than stars and astrological charts to lead you to Messiah. You need the ancient scriptures, which is why Herod summons the chief priests and the scribes, biblical scholars who knew the deeper story much better than he, who tell him that Bethlehem, Bethlehem is the key. Go there. Herod says to the Magi, go there and if you find him, come back and tell me where he is because I too want to go and see him, pay him homage. Herod is bluffing. Right, 
If there's anything to your stargazing, I will go and finish this child off before he threatens my throne, my place, my power. Well, the Magi do head out on the road to Bethlehem, and when they get there, they do find the child with Mary, his mother. Whatever it was that they expected to find, and whatever it was they were planning to do, when they saw this baby born to an unlikely mother in an unlikely place, they knelt down. They got down on their knees and they did pay him homage. And they brought out gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, royal gifts rather out of place in a peasant home. And then they left and they returned home by a different road, having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Now that's where the typical reading for Epiphany ends with the wise men going home by a different road. They pay homage because they've seen, because they've been gifted with an epiphany of something startling and new, and they go home shaking their heads in wonder. But tonight, tonight I decided we needed to extend the reading by a few verses. Now after they'd left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now, those are always important verses in this story though never more than at a time like this in our world. Get up and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, for in his madness for power, Herod is about to do something appalling. When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, the story continues, that they had not returned to tell him where the child was, he was infuriated, And he sent and he killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under according to the time that he learned from the wise men. For the sake of my throne, kill them all. As Malcolm Geit observes, the story of Herod's jealous rage and the massacre of the innocents would be too appalling to hear were we not called up to contemplate it almost every day in the news. What Herod did then is still being done across the world by tyrants who would sooner kill innocent people than lose their grip on power. Now, the Roman Empire stands at arm's length from this particular horror. This is Herod's doing, not Caesar's. Herod, though, is a vassal king, He holds his power only in relationship to the power of the empire. He holds his reign under the watchful eye of the empire and will be permitted to stay in power so long as it serves the political purposes of Caesar and of Rome. He was, to use the modern term, a tin-pot dictator, an autocratic ruler with delusions of grandeur. We have seen an almost endless parade of them 
over the last 50 years. Augusto Pinochet in Chile. Manuel Noriega in Panama. The brutal military dictatorship in El Salvador. Each tolerated, even protected for periods of time by the United States for the sake of opposing the development of Soviet-style communism. More recently, Gaddafi in Libya, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, each received considerable support from powerful nations and were enabled to stay in power for the sake of maintaining a sort of an uneasy, an uneasy political stability in the Middle East. This is the world of real politic, in which matters of morals and ethics are set aside for the sake of tactical ends. For the sake of my throne, kill them all, Herod says. And even if Caesar had caught word of it, it wouldn't have particularly troubled him. Not unless Herod was beginning to fancy himself as more than a vassal king, more than a tin-pot dictator. So long as Herod knows his place in Judea, what is the real cost of this slaughter? Besides, those Jews have a history of rising up against their overlords. Perhaps this will remind them that they need to keep in line if they want to survive. It is a horrific vision of power. So from Malcolm Geith's sonnet, Refugee. We think of him as safe beneath the steeple or cozy in a crib beside the font. But he is with a million displaced people on the long road of weariness and want. For even as we sing our final carol, his family is up and on that road, fleeing the wrath of someone else's quarrel, glancing behind and shouldering their load. This is the story of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph so many years ago. This is the story unfolding in the world today. With four million people displaced from Syria, Christians, Muslims, Kurds, along with a variety of smaller religious and ethnic groups. But it's not only Syria, for people are fleeing for their lives from Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, South Sudan... And against that story, we must make the same assertion that Malcolm makes in his sonnet, that the incarnate one, God with us, is with those millions of displaced peoples, waiting to be recognized and embraced by those who dare to call themselves Christian. Against those huge numbers, though, doesn't it seem small, for a church community to speak in terms of sponsoring one refugee family? What difference does that make? Yet it may be. It may be for that one family that we will sponsor. It may be for them a gift, a possibility, a beginning that expresses and embodies more than they can ask or imagine. 
It may be the dawning of a whole new life for that one family. God, who is our refuge, would have us see the face of Christ in the faces of that one family. It's an epiphany, a showing forth of the God who is indeed our refuge and our strength. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.